The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The big meeting is behind us. You saw it unfold yesterday if you were with us on Bloomberg. The Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, leading a bipartisan delegation to California. Beautiful setting at the Reagan Library as he met with President Tsai of Taiwan with Democrats and Republicans behind him not to mention Ronald Reagan's old Air Force One. And a so far muted response from China, as we told you, a a carrier battle group had entered the southeastern waters of Taiwan uh, midday yesterday. We haven't seen much since then. As McCarthy talked to Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern out in California, didn't sound very worried about it anyway. What China needs to understand is they can't dictate who a Speaker of the House can meet with, maybe with foe or friend. For the same moment that Macron's sitting down with President Xi, I think that's great. I would sit down with President Xi. A message echoed, well, maybe not so much the latter, by uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary on Taiwan, leading to further escalation. It is an unofficial visit. It is a private uh, visit, and it should not be used uh, to uh, for any kind of uh, escalation or overreaction, and we've been very clear about that. Curious to hear the thoughts of Kurt Tong, former U.S. Ambassador for Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. Ambassador, it's great to have you with us here on Bloomberg. Did, did Kevin McCarthy do damage to the relationship between Washington and Beijing or, in fact, give the U.S. a stronger hand in dealing with China? I think probably neither is true. Um, the as as characterized by the Biden administration fairly accurately, the final um, shape of the visit of President Tsai was was relatively routine, um, and therefore is so far at least engendering a smaller reaction from China than than um, than Nancy Pelosi's. Um, more higher-profile visit last year. On the other hand, there wasn't really that much substantive um, forward motion in the, in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. It was mostly symbolic. So mm-hmm. that, symbol, that symbolism is important. And in particular, I thought your report was very wise in pointing out that this was very much a bipartisan uh, embrace of, the, of, the pres- of President Tsai. Yeah. Yeah, we heard from Pete Aguilar. We heard from Seth Moulton in California yesterday. Uh, and now another delegation led by a Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall touching down in Taiwan to talk about regional security and trade. The more this travel takes place, Ambassador, does it mean less? I mean, can we create some normalcy here following the, the big dust up over Nancy Pelosi's trip? Well, I think that's the hope of the of the U.S. administration is that by both having regular contacts within the existing uh, agreed-upon rules with China for the handling of the relationship and having them regularly and substantively, um, but not uh, going out of the way way to provoke China symbolically, that this can be normalized. Um, and that the when, for example, the U.S. next announces uh, another arms sales to Taiwan, it doesn't raise a whole lot of of alarm bells in, in, in China or, or precipitate uh, a, a major response. What, what I think has been a bit missing so far has been really concerted action by the United States to, to give Taiwan a leg up in its foreign economic relations. Is that the, the Taiwan is a bit isolated on the diplomatic stage, and it makes it difficult for them to have trade agreements and and reach uh, deeper economic relations with other countries. And over the long run, in order to sustain their stance of of, uh, of deciding their own future vis-a-vis China, they need to have a strong economy there as well. Does that delegation uh, here with Chairman McCall's uh, 
Codell help in that direction that is on the agenda. We also know that the governor of Virginia is going to be making his way there on a trade mission soon as well. In some ways, the governor's visit may be more important. Um, really? If he, if he actually discusses uh, the promotion of specific investment deals in either direction between the U.S. and Taiwan, that could, that could lead to, and, and similar visits by other governors, could lead to a real strengthening of the economic relationship. You mentioned weapons for Taiwan. Kevin McCarthy yesterday uh, not only referred to the one China policy, but the six assurances, which we don't hear about a lot. This goes back to the Reagan administration, uh, which says we do not set a date certain for ending arms sales to Taiwan. Here's what the speaker said. I remember coming back from Ukraine in 2015 and advocating to sell them javelins. Javelins, a defensive weapon to stop the tanks from coming in. And maybe had that action been taken or others, Russia would not have felt that that was a mode for them to go through and thousands of lives would have been saved. And I think this is no different than what the six assurances have said from Reagan, that we would supply Taiwan with weapons. And we are, Ambassador. Do the six assurances uh, still live in the minds of Chinese leaders? I think so. I think they're, they're recognized by both uh, leaders in Beijing and leaders in, in Taipei. And and they and both realize that this means a pledge by the United States to ensure, and this is also in the Taiwan Relations Act, to ensure that Taiwan has the means to maintain the status quo in in the relationship between Taiwan and, and, and China. And so as China builds up its military capabilities, um, Taiwan needs to do so as well in order to maintain a credible deterrent, and that that's a that's a very important role and almost a unique role for the United States in uh, in, in supporting Taiwan in that regard. Enter Emmanuel Macron. The French president is uh, in Beijing meeting with Xi Jinping uh, to talk more about Ukraine, I think, than anything. But there were questions about whether that was an appropriate move for him to make. Does it help to have Western leaders uh, not only visiting Taiwan but also Beijing? I think it does, um, and I think we'll see in the coming months uh, a resumption of direct conversations and contact between the U.S. government and and, uh, and the PRC government in Beijing. Um, that the uh, it's important to have conversations in all directions, and it's entirely legitimate thing for for uh, the French leader and also for the EU leader uh, to be going to to China and negotiating, asserting their economic and security interests vis-a-vis China, with, as you said, uh, China's stance on Ukraine being perhaps the, the top agenda item, but, but certainly uh, the trade imbalance between the EU and, and China was also very high on the agenda, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and France was pushing that hard as well. People try to make parallels, draw parallels between uh, Taiwan and Ukraine and suggest that she is watching what happens in Ukraine to make his own sort of uh, train of thought about what to do with Taiwan and exactly how the U.S. handles this moment. Do you agree with that? Well, there are some, some similarities in the sense that a large power, um, Russia in this case, um, unilaterally attacked a, a smaller power um, that it claims does not have a legitimate right to be separate and follow its own its own foreign policy, et cetera. That's that's about where the parallels stop. Um, you know, the Taiwan situation is different geographically with a being an island with a large separation of water. Um, the Taiwan military has been preparing for for decades and to be able to defend itself. Uh, and there's there's frankly a more explicit relationship between uh, Taiwan and uh, the United States than was the case uh, of of uh, Ukraine because Ukraine's membership of NATO was not uh, you know had not happened still yeah. hasn't happened yeah. so that there are there are some significant differences also I would point to the fact that China is is, is sort of a hopeful growth oriented player in the global economy and global society so China in in a sense has a lot more to lose by angering uh, the rest of the planet um, uh, 
with a with a regional war than it was the case with Russia, where Russia has a, a sort of monochromatic economy where it exports uh, natural resources, and and people end up buying those regardless of of uh, of, uh, of what of what they do in foreign policy, and I think that yeah. would not be true in the case of China. And China would find, if it was isolated on the global stage, that could really seriously undermine its national objectives. We're talking with Kurt Tong, former U.S. ambassador for Asia Pacific Economic Corporation here, uh, cooperation here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, the response from China, we thought we were in for it yesterday when we saw the uh, the, the battle carrier group. Uh, enter southeastern waters around Taiwan. There hasn't been much since then. Bloomberg News is writing it as a muted response, as China has a lot of things to worry about right now, Ambassador. Is this all we're going to get? Probably, is my response. I think it's a little early to say conclusively that this is the, this is the sum total of what we're going to see. Uh, and there has been reports that China might be trying some new uh, countermeasures in terms of uh, boarding and inspecting shipping between uh, different points um, between Taiwan and, and China on the Straits side of the island as well. That's a, that's a new development. It needs to be looked at closely in terms of, of what it means and and, uh, and how important it is. But I think I think China is, is trying to walk a, a a fine line here, where if they overdo it and are perceived on Taiwan as drastically overreacting, that that could actually uh, hurt China's ambitions to have a political landscape in Taiwan, which is less fiercely opposed uh, to the PRC. And so um, there's a lot of different uh, factors involved in, in, in tempering China's response. Is a Chinese invasion of Taiwan inevitable? I don't think so. I think I think with a proper balance of deterrence uh, and assurance that neither uh, Taiwan nor the United States are trying to uh, unilaterally change the status quo across the Straits, uh, combined with with a with a meaningful and, and credible deterrent, that then we can uh, continue to to have this problem on for for decades to come. Decades, and you know. And then at some point, there maybe things will change in China, and and the people in Taiwan will have a different view of, of China, and things will there will be a different landscape. But I think in the current situation, the best the best outcome is is uh, is no no outcome, is no change. Mm-hmm. Ambassador, I'm glad you could come talk to us today. Kurt Tong, former U.S. ambassador for Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, getting us started here on Bloomberg Sound on. Love we'll to take a quick pass here with the panel before we dig into this in more concerted fashion this hour. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, having seen this unfold last evening, our interview with Kevin McCarthy following the meeting, uh, Rick Davis, and now, of course, this new delegation uh, that we're seeing touchdown in Taiwan with Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall. It seems the more we talk, the less China has to say about it. I mean, how many times can you gas up an entire aircraft carrier group uh, to make a stink when a U.S. lawmaker wants to visit Taiwan? You, you see it that way? Uh, absolutely. I thought Ambassador Tong made a really good point that uh, China has to actually also be aware of the politics on um, on Taiwan. Uh, they have, you know, uh, the KMT leader Ma in their country right now trying to uh, elevate uh, their political chances of winning a presidential race next year in Taiwan. Uh, the last thing they want to do is is overplay their hand and have a negative reaction. You know, even though um, uh, when uh, when they talk about China being um, you know, the same population uh, as uh, as Taiwan, uh, all descendant of um, you know the same uh, families, uh, the reality is Taiwanese see themselves sixty percent in the last polls I've seen. As Taiwanese first and Chinese second, so there there is a lot of politics on the mainland that may or on the uh, island that may be directing some of uh, China's reticence to overheat this situation. Just keep showing up, Jeannie. It starts to mean less each time, right? 
Well, that's true. And I have to say, I give Kevin McCarthy a lot of credit for the meeting yesterday. I did not go into this, as you know, feeling optimistic, but I thought he handled it well. And of course, you covered this last night. It was bipartisan. It was restrained. I mean, we knew it was on U.S. soil. The fact that they didn't do a press, that they did a press conference, not a speech. So there were good elements, and I give them credit for that. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Speaker McCarthy said it in no uncertain terms yesterday. I am the Speaker of the House. There is no place that China is going to tell me and where I can go or who I can speak to, whether you be foe or whether you be friend. I'm not the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And the one thing I hope all countries see is that we're united in this same approach, together, on both sides. And we're going to speak with one voice when it comes to China or any others when we look at foreign policy. Speaking from the Reagan Library yesterday, Simi Valley, California, after his meeting with President Tsai. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Let's reassemble the panel with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, Jeannie, China restraint on Taiwan is the headline on the terminal today. The response muted, they say, remembering what happened after Nancy Pelosi's visit. Uh, is there more to come here or is, is the bluster already over? You know, I hope the bluster is over. Um, but, you know, the ambassador, I think he, you know, said in your conversation, he issued a word of caution, there could be more to come. But I do think part of the reason we're seeing restraint is not only because McCarthy and the president of Taiwan showed it on this end, but also because of the diplomatic visit. Somebody described this as sort of a diplomatic terror that Xi Jinping is on or a traffic jam over there in the last few weeks. We've had Germany, Spain, Brazil. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the list goes goes on and on. You talked about France, uh, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia, foreign ministers shaking hands. That's historic. So I think part of the restraint may be related to the fact that Xi Jinping doesn't want to upstage his own soft diplomacy and the work he's doing in that regard. That's critically important for his prestige, both at home and around the world. So that may be what's happening. And perhaps as those visits start to die down, we do see them respond. But I certainly hope not, because I think McCarthy and Tsai did show a good deal of restraint on this end. He did take a little swipe at the Houston Rockets GM, but besides that, it was a restrained meeting. Well, it was, and I don't know if maybe China thought more was going to come of this, Rick. Maybe they were waiting for the invitation for Kevin McCarthy to go to Taiwan, uh, but but this is a far cry from what we saw last year when Nancy Pelosi touched down. Well, I do think the distinction has merit, right? Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. That was yeah. a you know a historic event. Uh, it's, it is much more in your face. Uh, these tra- transit meetings have been going on uh, for as long as anybody can remember. Uh, and so really uh, should be dealt with in a very routine basis. And I, kudos to Speaker McCarthy for saying nobody tells the Speaker of the United States who we can meet with and who we can't meet with. Could you imagine, you know, if we had said to President Xi, hey, you can't meet with Vladimir Putin. That's <laughs> right. outrageous. We're going to take a carrier group and put it into the Black Sea. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it would be outrageous. And so the 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 moral equivalency that China shows uh, to people meddling in their backyard isn't respected by those when they meddle in ours. Let's talk a little bit more about the French president, his visit today. All the trappings of a state visit with the full arrival ceremony. Kevin McCarthy talked about that as well, by the way, because there might have been some concern. Oh, geez, what's he doing over there? They're talking about Ukraine. Is this from Star Wars, by the way? Where do they get this stuff? Here's Kevin McCarthy. I don't think what Macron's doing is conflicting here. From the same point that I tell China, they cannot tell me who I can meet with. For the same argument that I said, this meeting will foster greater freedoms, right? It's communication. So I think it's great that Macron is meeting in China. I hope he delivers a message 
not to fund Russia's war in Ukraine. I hope he delivers a message that democracy makes the world safer and stronger. Rick, is that the message that Macron is delivering? Oh, yeah. You know, this is going to be about Ukraine. This is not about the South China Sea. And what I thought was really impressive is the EU-China ambassador, Fu Kong, issued a statement in advance of the the visit by Macron saying, hey, we weren't for this war. (laughs) And all this stuff about no limit with friendships, you know, between China and Russia is just rhetoric. So it's the first time I've seen China actually back off completely uh, from where Putin was hoping he could position his relationship with Beijing. So uh, I actually think it's resulting in uh, a really good outcome so far by China signaling to Europe that they're not going into to Ukraine. Well, as we hear, though, from Macron, I know I can count on you, he says, Jeannie, through an interpreter, to bring Russia back to reason and everybody to the negotiating table. He's urging President Xi to help start negotiations. Is he a trusted actor in that role? Well, you know, he's probably, besides uh, Modi, is probably the only person, or maybe one of the few, I shouldn't say only, world leaders who may have He just got off a three-day vacation to Moscow, though. That's right. And, you know, that means that they have, in Kevin McCarthy's words, a communication going. But that said, I don't think that even Xi Jinping is going to be able to convince Vladimir Putin of anything as it regards the war in Ukraine. But Macron does have six hours alone with Xi, which is quite an awful lot. He's got to try to use it to make this case and you know i hope he is able to make it successfully but i don't think we can hold our breath that we're going to see xi jinping get putin to back off on the war and but you know i just want to go back to mccarthy for one second I think his argument there is dead on when he talks about the fact communication is critical. And, you know, when Biden talks about we want to compete, not conflict. And this is where I have been a little bit concerned with the rhetoric out of Washington. And this is why I'm hopeful about yesterday, because the rhetoric has been really, really tough on both Xi Jinping and China. And that would be fine, except we have a world economy and a business community, and we depend on China to be able to work with them in a number of areas. So I think we've got to have that communication he talks about and it can't be all you know hardcore negative on china and xi jinping because it's going to impact our ability to have those important conversations what are your thoughts on on president xi bringing people to the table here rick i mean they did put forth the peace plan already it was immediately rejected uh by the u.s certainly by ukraine because it would it would call for ukraine to give up big chunks of its country it would essentially hand victory to russia wouldn't it Yeah, that's right. I mean, nobody's taken the Chinese initiative uh, uh, seriously, but it's worth Macron's time to see if he can move that communication opening, like Jeannie said, you know, into something more productive. Um, You know, that 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 peace plan was dead on arrival. Uh, You'll notice he didn't even push it very hard when he was in Moscow. Uh, But the bottom line is uh, the thing you have to remember, too, is they're the ones not answering the phone. You know, after the Chinese spy balloon incident, we called them. They didn't pick up. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's been an effort, you know, by both sides to try and chill this relationship. But the reality is, I think once we get through President Xi's size uh, visit, uh, you you, you probably will see, as, as Ambassador Kirk Tong said earlier, Uh, a renewed opening of communications with the U.S. The administration's been pretty quiet, uh, Jeannie, other than, you know, saying that this is not an escalation and so forth. When does President Biden get back to the table with President Xi? Will that meeting happen anytime soon? I certainly hope it does. And I think it's got to start with Anthony Blinken. As Rick just mentioned, I mean, it was really troubling when they didn't answer the phone about the uh, the balloon. Um, and that, you know, sort of chilling of a relationship at that high level is really problematic. I did not think he should have canceled his visit. So I hope Blinken gets over there and has his visit or they make arrangements elsewhere for a visit. And then certainly Biden has got to begin a more than an hour conversation every six months with Xi Jinping. You know, they can't only be talking to John Williams, because to your point, by the way, I did think that was John Williams music that they were playing over there. (laughs) Uh, So I thought the same thing, Joe Matthew. But, you know, they've got to be talking at the highest levels. That's critically important. And hopefully I I do, by the way, also agree the Biden administration was smart to keep out of this visit. Mm. This was a transit. It was an official visit. She should not have been talking to the Biden administration. And she didn't. And that was a very important point. And it helped to tamp down and, you know, 
I think helped lead to this restrained response from China. And that would have made it official, certainly. Rick, what should be the conditions, uh, if, if we can even call them that, for even just a remote meeting for President Biden to get on the phone again with President Xi? You know, I don't think it has to be conditions based. You know, there's routine contact uh, and uh, it doesn't have to be a summit. It can be on the sidelines of, you know, a G8 meeting or something like that. So I think and it's almost better not to elevate it too high. Right. Not to make it uh, difficult for both teams to position, uh, you know, an icebreaker like this. But it does need to happen. Should happen soon. Uh, and, and it's not going to make it any easier the longer it goes. So uh, I think all parties uh, at the same time are probably thinking, you know, we've got to sort of get back into the routine of regular contact, not just at the, 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 the presidency level, but, um, you know, with with the other staffs that normally would have regular daily contact on issues that are that are really important to both countries. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano bring the analysis here just about every day. Certainly was the case this shortened week here on Bloomberg Sound On. I thank you both for being part of this in our signature panel here on The Fastest Show in Politics. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, joined by Kaylee Lyons. We've got a busy hour underway here. It's good to see you, by the way. Nice to <laughs> have another person in this room because there's a lot of stuff going on. And it brings us in a moment to the White House. The after action report on Afghanistan mm-hmm. has just dropped their briefing on that. We're going to get to that coming up uh, once we uh, have our ducks in a row here in a conversation that we will have, I'm sure, with someone important. How are you yes, today? Yes, with Alex Zerdin. He's the former Treasury attache in Afghanistan. So Excellent. a great voice on that document. You know, I just control F'd on yeah. the PDF. Yes. Trump mentioned 13 times and then one additional time Trump's was mentioned. A lot of blame being cast at President Biden's predecessor. That'll give you a sense of what is to come. But first, we want to talk about Wisconsin. Yes. We kind of touched on it yesterday. Uh, but it really it's just been overshadowed by all the Trump madness this week and every I mean, my goodness, it's hard to get any oxygen uh, in the world of the first presidential indictment. But a big shakeup in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, liberal judge uh, Janet Protasewicz, be conservative, Daniel Kelly, which rebalances the court that had leaned conservative. And there are major implications here, not only for Wisconsin, but for the nation. Uh, the speeches that night were pretty classic. Yeah. Protosewitz going for sort of the standard approach. So finally, to the people of this beautiful state of Wisconsin, I thank you. That's pretty, pretty normal. Victory speech, people feeling good about it. Today's results mean two very important and special things. First, it means that Wisconsin voters have made their voices heard. Yes, Yes, okay. Uh, now, the contrast here, and she goes on to talk about, uh, you know, the, the reasons why, but Daniel Kelly, different approach. This has been a beautiful, beautiful life here in Wisconsin with all of you. Oh. And I wish Wisconsin the best of luck. Okay. Because I think it's going to need it. Oh, boy. Thank you. Wait, that was it? Hang on. Actually, that was the best part of the concession speech. Was that a concession speech? It was speech? not a concession speech. Hang <laughs> Is on. that this how is, we're defining check this? Check this out. And it brings me no joy to say this. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. Wow. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. Wow. All right. Uh, must be This was up the most something. deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. Okay. It was truly beneath contempt. Beneath contempt. Now, I could keep going here. This went mm-hmm. on for some time, uh, Kaylee, but no, not. A, I guess that would not be a concession speech. Yeah, I don't think we can call it one. Clearly a very contentious race, and for one party, the losing party, a contentious result. But really what it came down to, it seems, in Wisconsin was one issue in particular because Protosewicz ran on abortion. Yes, right. Essentially on pro-abortion uh, policies, and that's really what this comes down to and why what happened in Wisconsin, in theory, could be resonating all across the country. Well, we get to talk about this with Ryan T. Beckwith, who's been covering this uh, and is with us in studio. Ryan, great to see you. Yeah, good uh, to be here. But what was that all about? I mean, th- th- this there was some real anger in that. You know, um, he 
took a lot of exception to the uh, ads in which she said that he would rule against abortion. And the the context here is that there have been no abortions in Wisconsin since Roe versus Wade was overturned because of an 1849 law that immediately went back into place, uh, which is being contested in the courts. And it was an issue in the governor's race. It was an issue in the attorney general's race. The, the Democratic governor and Democratic attorney general are fighting it in court right now. And basically, the winner of this race was going to determine whether Democrats or Republicans have a majority on the court. And Protosiewicz essentially said, you know, give us a majority and we'll overturn this law in so many words. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's running as a judicial candidate. There's only they can't come right out and say how they'll rule. But she's running at saying, I believe that women have the right to make mm-hmm. a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, on on the other side, uh, Dan Kelly, who has done work for the state Republican Party and had done work for anti-abortion groups in the past, uh, was very coy about, well, you don't know what I would do. I, I won't say what I would do. But um, anti-abortion groups were advocating for him, were doing grassroots work for him and endorsing him. So it was pretty clear, but it was also clear that like – only the uh, abortion rights side of the argument wanted to talk about abortion. The other side did not. Yeah. And of course, we're talking specifically about how it affects Wisconsin here. But in theory, the eyes, especially of Republicans all across the country, are on what happened here. And considering it in the aftermath, both Joe and I this morning came into the office and we were like, did you see the Wall Street Journal Mm. op-ed talked about a five alarm warning to Republicans? In 2024, because of what happened in the Badger state, the quote is Republicans had better get their abortion position straight and more in line with where voters are or they will face another disappointment in 2024. Is the initial reaction we are seeing from the Republican Party suggest that they uh, agree? I, you know, I think in private, a, a lot of Republicans would tell you that this is a damaging issue for them. I do think that Republicans are able to win when it's not as central. I mean, there, there's a, the fact that this was the seat that would determine the majority that would rule on whether this law could be upheld. And this was basically the only pathway for abortion rights supporters in Wisconsin because the legislature is heavily gerrymandered and mm-hmm. controlled by Republicans who actually now have a supermajority um, because there was a special election on the same ballot in which they won a key race. Uh, there was no way to legislatively get around this. It was going to come down to the court. So so what this showed for abortion rights supporters is that when they can make it a defining issue in a race, then then it's a slam dunk for them. I mean, she won by 10 points. Mm-hmm. It was just devastating uh, to the Republican candidate, Republican back candidate, I should say. Officially, it's nonpartisan, but it's kind of like a wink and a nod. Everyone knows. Uh, so this was this was it was just a loser of an issue for him. She hammered him with it. They they Democratic Party gave her millions of dollars to hammer him on it, and uh, and they, he just couldn't change the subject. Now they did Republicans did win a Senate race in November in that same state. Mm. In and I think largely because abortion just wasn't as central to that race because they you know you could vote for Senate. And and know that it wasn't going to really make a difference in the same way. So, so I think the governor's races and this and in this case, the Supreme Court race where yep. is where it really is helping them. But that doesn't mean that they that Republicans can't win, but they have to find some way to make that not the central issue. Well, when you factor this in, you look at what happened in Michigan, Kansas, the midterms at large. I to your point, we can quantify this one. Can Republicans actually sort of connect the dots between all of these races to formulate a strategy for, for 24? How, how does the GOP talk about this in a way that can appeal to a mainstream voter base? Well, I mean, the problem is you have to get through a Republican primary first. And in a, a Republican primary right now, it's still not yet. Uh, voters are still going to reward the person with the strongest anti-abortion credentials. Right. They can't exactly pivot to the center after that. It's very hard to etch a sketch. And I think like what Dan Kelly was trying to do in Wisconsin was was say, look, you know, I was a lawyer. I was just doing work for my client. You know, I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that's what I think. You don't know what I really think. And and I have to set that aside. And that just was not working for him. I mean, it, it, it just if there's a hint there that you may have done something in the past or that this may be your true opinion. And he had written some blog posts too, like once upon a time mm-hmm. talking about fetuses and, and being people, uh, you know, people are, people are pretty good at sniffing that out and going, Nope, they like you're going to, you're not going to be able to do it unless you basically come out, unless it's just not relevant. 
in this race or you have to take a much stronger stance than I think you can get through a Republican primary right now with? Well, the closer we get to the primaries for the presidential race or really just any election in 2024, the farther away we are getting from the actual overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I just wonder if this is an issue that you see as having longevity or or is that kind of galvanizing effect it has had with certain members of the voting populace just going to be faded by that? I mean, this was a special election in which there was basically nothing else on the ballot. And, and they're designed that way. They're typically in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court races uh, are held in the spring after a, another big election to end there for 10 years. And mm-hmm. it's designed that way to sort of take the politics out of out of the races. Right. Um, so so normally these the, the one reason why Republicans controlled it for so long is that it's a, typically a whiter, more conservative, more reliable, older voter that you get in these races. And you did not get that this time. I mean, Dane County, where uh, a lot of college students live. It was incredible turnout through the roof, uh, turnout among young people through the roof, and and they were voting eighty percent for Protosewitz in Dane County. So so abortion helped her win the suburbs. Uh, it helped her cut the the Republicans' traditional advantage in the in the suburban areas of Wisconsin. Um, it helped her win the Democratic strongholds, and then it just you know was this accelerant. To young people, and I gotta say, like the 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 highest youth turnout that we've had in the last thirty years was twenty eighteen, and and the second mm-hmm. highest was twenty twenty two. So th- those are not, I mean, those are midterms. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are not like traditionally Democrats, youth voters have kind of like left Democrats, you know, waiting at the altar. Like they've always thought, oh, we just we can win the young people, and they'll turn out, and then you know they they. They got busy. They were they were trying to get Taylor Swift tickets or something. But young people are really energized. They're really turning out in high numbers, and they've been doing it since 2018. And uh, they're so that's it's a habit now. I mean, that's mm. that's three election cycles in a row where yeah. young people have turned out. I don't think you can look at that and say, oh, well, that was just a one time thing. I think this is a a flashing signal for Republicans that that they're facing every day more young people turning out to vote, turning 18 and deciding that they're Democrats and voting for Democrats. I don't know that they're deciding that they're Democrats because young people are not joining parties, mm-hmm. but they're voting That's for right. Democrats. Yeah. They're independents leaning Democratic. So you, 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 Consider 24 here, and that's that's a, a deciding factor for a growing number of voters in that premise. And we know that Ron DeSantis, who has yet to announce, mm-hmm. has promised to sign a six week ban. Uh, and it does appear that that will reach his desk in Florida. Uh, so that sets up the the very scenario that we're talking about here. I mean, that that's beyond, you know, that that's well, that's beyond what many people consider acceptable. How does he continue that narrative in a race against Donald Trump, who's going to try to out life and out evangelicalize him on a debate stage? You know, uh, to be fair, the um, the Florida legislation would allow up to 15 weeks with uh, with a reason, uh, quote unquote. Um, so there's some wiggle room there where yeah. he may try to say it's not actually a six week ban when he's trying to frame it one way. And no, it's a six week ban when he's trying to frame it another way. Sure. Um, that's I don't think that's helpful for him in the general election. I mean, I just full stop. And it's not Once helpful you're arguing between six and 15 weeks. You might have lost that argument, right? Yeah. I mean, you're and it's just not it's it, it's just any time when it's like you're playing defense then because you're having to explain mm-hmm. what you what you wanted. And I, I think that the reason why he wants to sign this bill is that he thinks it will help him in the Republican primary. He's probably not wrong on that. Um, Donald Trump uh, does not seem to really talk as much about abortion as you would think for a guy who actually sort of got done what a lot of Republican presidential candidates said they would do. I mean, like that he appointed the justices who did this. And there's a lot of Republicans who ran for years saying that they would do that, but not really doing it. Mm-hmm. And and he did it. Um, and yet he doesn't really brag about it that much. And a, a lot of uh, anti-abortion folks kind of wish he would talk more and actually wish that he would say more about what he'll do next. And he kind of doesn't. And I don't know if that's um, because he sees it as not a strong issue um, or if he sort of feels like, hey, I fulfilled my part of the bargain. You know, I'm done. Or he thinks that he's strong enough on the issue that it's mm-hmm. that it's not worth getting into. Yeah. Um, but that's that's in a general election also a liability for him. 
just quickly, if all of this at its root to a certain extent comes down to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, at that time we were having a whole conversation about faith in the Supreme Court. At the same time today, we're looking at the ProPublica article about Justice Thomas and, and his relationship with a billionaire. Just from your perspective, quickly, how is faith in the court? Confidence in the court? It is very low among Democrats and independents who lean Democratic. And I think that um, there's an increasing sense among folks, and like this Wisconsin race was kind of a classic of, of example of that, but there's yeah. just an increasing sense among folks that it's a, just another political entity. Mm. And, and you know, of course, that's true. <laughs> I mean, like we all right. kind of They're nominated true. by yeah, of a certain party. it's always been part of politics, but yeah. it's always also presented itself as being a little bit apart from politics. Mm-hmm. And that's just increasingly hard for them to uh, manage that. And I, I think it in the past, when the Supreme Court has managed to make a couple of decisions that yeah. cut against their own side, that's helped. But that's not they're not able to do that right now. Yeah. Ryan Teague back with many thanks, as always, Bloomberg politics reporter on the Wisconsin election. You might not have paid enough attention to this week. You haven't heard the last of the countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th. A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Alongside Kaylee Lines in Washington, we have breaking news today from the White House, the after-action report on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. This is a pretty big deal, and you can read about it now. Justin Sink from our White House team has a story on the terminal. Biden Afghanistan review sees need for better evacuation plans. Mm-hmm. Kaylee, you remember when this unfolded? It was it, it captivated uh, well the world for days, and it turned out to be terribly tragic with the death of yeah. thirteen Marines there. But was what was also uh, you, you know an unprecedented airlift that that started with good intentions, but started to look more like Saigon by the day. Yeah, I don't think anyone can ever erase from their mind the images of Afghans trying to chase American military planes yeah, on the tarmac exactly. at the airport, lifting babies over the walls to U.S. soldiers. Really a difficult scene to watch. And really just at the time, I think a world that was shocked by the speed with which Kabul fell and that the Taliban was able to regain control, something the military clearly wasn't prepared for. But of course, as we read this report, the Biden administration, while acknowledging it, needs review to do it better the next time around places a lot of blame on the prior on the prior administration yeah that came up today uh in the briefing room with john kirby that's when this was unveiled just in the last hour the spokesman for the national security council i would argue that the very fact that we voluntarily the agencies voluntarily decided to go conduct after action reviews nobody told them to do that that wasn't legislated by congress they did that on their own the fact that they did that and that we were now placing it in, uh, in, uh, on the Hill for Congress to look at. The fact that we digested and distilled some of the key points of that and gave it out in a public document, the fact that I'm up here talking to you about it, I think shows you how seriously that the president felt about learning lessons from this withdrawal. I would also point out to you that the work isn't over. The work isn't over as we bring in Alex Zerdin, former Treasury attache in Afghanistan, now runs Capital Peak a risk advisory firm. He was in Afghanistan from July of 2018 to January of 2020. Alex, it's great to have you here. Does the administration deserve credit for doing its own internal review? Joe Cayley, thank you so much for having me. I think this is an important step. Look, the events in August 2021 with the withdrawal captured all of our understanding of, of the challenges over 20 years plus in Afghanistan. And this is an important way to make sure that the sacrifices by thousands of soldiers Marines over those decades were not in vain, and especially at the time of the withdrawal. So there's some important nuggets here. There's some important Mm -hmm. lessons. And there's still so much work to be done, so much more to be understood about our 20-year saga in Afghanistan. So obviously, this was a war that took place over decades, but specifically in the report, they are pointing to decisions that were made over the course of just the 
couple of years before Kabul fell and the withdrawal happened. I'm quoting directly here. President Biden's choices for how to execute withdrawal from Afghanistan were severely constrained by conditions created by his predecessor. When he came into office, he was confronted with difficult realities left to him by the Trump administration. Alex, how true is that? The story is still unfolding. There is an Afghanistan war commission that Congress authorized and that is still just getting underway to understand the history of our of our time in Afghanistan. There's plenty of blame to go around across multiple administrations about the failures and the challenges in Afghanistan. But I think it's a factual matter. And I had the opportunity and the privilege to serve in the U.S. government during the peace process and the negotiations between the U.S. government and the Taliban. There was a commitment by the Trump administration in February 2022 that called for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. So in a certain sense, the train had left the building. Mm -hmm. had left the station by the time that the Biden administration came in. The report reveals that President Biden uh, asked his advisors to consider whether to trigger evacuation efforts on the 6th of August. Senior leaders recommended doing so twice before the president initiated the effort on the 14th of August. Alex, would it have made a difference if this started earlier? I think there's obviously a lot of lessons learned here. The earlier you withdraw U.S. persons, U.S. forces, U.S. Uh, diplomats, the the quicker it is to get out. But this is so much easier in hindsight. We were all living, I was you know, outside of government at the time, but we were all living this crisis unfolding in, in real time. And I don't think anyone expected Kabul and the country to collapse as quickly as it did. So again, we're speaking with the benefit of hindsight here, but what the administration, the Pentagon says they're trying to do is make sure that it doesn't happen again, right? What c- corrections need to happen going forward, better evacuation plans. What were the biggest flaws that need to be fixed? So as I think the report highlights, the the lessons have already been implemented in places like Ukraine and Ethiopia for the benefit of U.S. citizens, U.S. diplomats and others. The flaws, I mean, again, this is I think this is a summary of a classified and non-classified reports to Congress. And so we don't know the full extent. And so I just want to be in in fairness. Mm -hmm. This is a a public disclosure we're seeing. But I, I think, look, like this. The, the tension that they outline in this report is that the earlier you raise concerns and the more communication and the more information you share earlier on, it, it, it is a zero sum with what, you know, expressing confidence in your partners, expressing confidence in the host government about their capabilities. And so you're really making very, very difficult trade-offs of when to order withdrawals and at what scale to do that on what time horizon. John Kirby today, Alex, echoing what we've heard from uh, Pentagon officials since that uh, withdrawal in August is that no one predicted. In fact, they said it would go very differently. The, the, The rapid fall of Kabul. Here he is. No agency predicted a Taliban takeover in nine days. No agency predicted the rapid fleeing of President Ghani, who had indicated uh, to us his intent to remain in Afghanistan up until he departed on the 15th of August. And no agency predicted that that the more than 300,000 trained and equipped Afghan National Security and Defense Forces would fail to fight for their country. Particularly the latter there. Alex, how much of this was an intelligence failure as opposed to bad management? I, I think that we are still learning the, the true history and the true accounting of this. I think the, it was very hard to predict the collapse of the forces in Afghanistan and the government in particular, as, uh, as Admiral Kirby noted. And look, we've had different examples in places like Ukraine, where the government stayed in, President Zelensky stayed in power, and the people, the citizens of Ukraine fought against Russian invasion. We have contrast. So Afghanistan, we, we don't know if this will be a unique situation in unique circumstances, or if this is a template for the future. We can talk about the lessons learned from the withdrawal of, of Afghanistan, but we can also talk about the lessons learned by that war in the first place, which, as you've already said, we're talking decades of fighting here. How do you think this informs the wars that the U.S. is or is not willing to wage in the future? I think this is a strength of our democracy and of the sound principled disagreements that exist among different parties in the, in the U.S., but Congress, again, has authorized one, an oversight entity, the CIGAR, which is, provides ongoing oversight still to this day of what happened on the ground in Afghanistan. They also commissioned the Afghanistan War Commission to study this 
deliberately and in a bipartisan, rigorous manner for several years is their mandate. There are other mechanisms in the public and private sectors that can look at this. And I think we, we take the lessons learned. I mean, this was a, a incredible expenditure of blood and treasure, over $2 trillion, thousands of soldiers killed and tens of thousands wounded. We have an obligation to learn the lessons and to apply them in the future. We're seeing, again, parts of this already applied to Ukraine. And I think we have concerns where other threats are emerging around the world and continue to get worse, that we make sure we, we make best use of these resources and make, make best use of these lessons to for the benefit of the American people moving forward. You mentioned the investigation in Congress uh, into the withdrawal from Afghanistan. This has become a big issue for for Republicans, the new Republican majority in the House. Will this after-action report be factored in, or are they going to do their own investigation, bring officials from the administration in for their own interviews? Yeah, this is certainly not the end. Uh, there, This is just a middle uh, waypoint of ongoing investigations among the Republican-controlled Congress, uh, as well as, again, this this uh, bipartisan uh, Afghanistan War Commission, as well as the ongoing work of CIGAR. So there's a panoply, a number of different oversight mechanisms that exist, and some with uh, more or less political intention. So this is, again, just the, the center part, a midpoint of years-long uh, ongoing investigations that, that are far from over. Alex Zerden, many thanks for the analysis here in the clutch with breaking news. We talked to the former Treasury attache in Afghanistan on this after-action report. He's now uh, at Capitol Peak, runs that risk advisory firm here in Washington, D.C. Pretty remarkable moment, uh, and it feels a little bit like Friday news. It does, not just any Friday as well, ahead of Easter. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.